Today's reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You may be seated. On this Lord's Day, I'm excited to get back into 2 Corinthians with you. And if we will pray one more time with me, we will begin. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do come before you on this day, and we're so grateful, God, that we can gather together as your people. Lord, I'm thankful that we can gather under your word and, Father, to be instructed by you and so that we could learn more of the mind of God in your word. And God, I pray that today you would simply give us a glimpse of uh, the glory of the gospel and that you would uh, quicken us, Lord, to see the greatness of it, the sobriety of it, that we would be gripped by it so that we could revere you more, so that we could fear you more, that we could worship you more reverently. God, that our hearts could be more in tune with who you are and how you've revealed yourself through your son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, just give us illumination and give us understanding, Lord, into your word today. I pray, God, that you would help us to see, Lord, just how serious the gospel is. Help us to see, Lord, that the gospel is um, a matter of life and death and that eternal things lie in wake of the gospel truth. Give us light, Lord. Give us understanding and bless your word today. And we pray that you would fill us, Lord. Fill me with your spirit, God, and give me unction to speak your word with clarity and be with your people today, Lord, and give them ears to hear what the spirit is saying. And Father, we pray for any among us that are not yet in Christ, that you would use your word, that you would quicken the soul, that you would regenerate the heart, that you would bring life where there is death and light where there is darkness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, this week we are looking at the second part of what I've entitled very basically, uh, what is a successful ministry or success in the ministry? And I think that the Apostle Paul gives several aspects, several elements of what it means to have a successful biblical ministry. And uh, last week we looked at two points. Namely, we looked at the issue of strength and we looked at the issue of sincerity. Today I want to talk about the issue of sobriety. And I really want to hone in on verses 3 and 4 of this passage. Let's read that together again, verses 3 and 4. It says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving 
so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, for the Apostle Paul, the gospel is serious, serious business. You know, the the gospel is somewhat trendy today in the church. You hear about Together for the Gospel, the Gospel Project, the Gospel Coalition, living a gospel-centered life, and that's great. But for the Apostle Paul, the gospel is not just a, a trend. It's not just the, the, name of a, the name of a book that is about to be released. But for the Apostle Paul, as we know, because we know Paul, for the, for the, for the Apostle Paul, the gospel is his all-consuming passion in life. And for Paul, the gospel was a matter of life and death. I think for Paul, the, the gospel was was so absolutely essential, grasping the gospel, understanding the gospel, and having the the gospel make an impact of what it is saying. For the Apostle Paul, the gospel was nothing less than that which polarizes all of mankind. It puts people one or two places. It means that there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are those that believe in the gospel, trust in the gospel. There are those that are saved by the gospel. There are those that love the gospel, that are living according to the gospel and are conforming their lives more and more to the gospel. And then there are those who reject the gospel, who don't trust in the gospel, and ultimately who do not obey the gospel. And that is really the focus of the Apostle Paul here, those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord. And I would submit to you that for Paul, that registered in the way of a very sober-minded ministry. For the Apostle Paul, you know, ministry was not Disneyland. Um, You know how the seeker-sensitive church is. I was Witnessing, uh, uh, visiting at a church because a friend of mine was there, probably a church I wouldn't go to on my own, but because he was there teaching on a, a certain subject of apologetics, I went to support him. And I went into this church, and it was a beautiful church, but brothers and sisters, I have to tell you that when you put an arcade in your church for the kids, you're communicating something about the gospel, and that is that the gospel is not that serious that you can come to church and you can feel like you're at Disneyland and that's okay. And where is the weight of the gospel in that? But my friends, the gospel is not a light matter for the Apostle Paul. As I've already stated, it's a matter of life and death. And therefore, the way we do ministry reflects what we're saying about the gospel, realizing that ministry, that church is not a place to play games that church is not, a, it's not just simply a social club. You know that? Church is not a date, dating service. Church is not a babysitting service. Church is not a place where you go to, to make a connections and to expand your network. Oh, you can, gr- you can make great friendships and establish great uh, relationships at church. That's true. But ultimately, my friends, the gospel, the church... The ministry is about life and death issues. And the Apostle Paul begins this whole section by asking a very important question. He uses what's known as a first-class conditional statement. If our gospel is veiled, which he says, which, which basically states 
that he is assuming that to be the case, because it is. The Apostle Paul, just like us, knows that the way is narrow, that the way to eternal life is hard and difficult, and that there will be few that find it. For the Apostle Paul, he realized that the gospel for some will remain ever veiled. They will not see the glories and the beauties of the gospel. And so for Paul, it is important that we adopt this vision of sobriety of the gospel and of ministry. Paul is reflecting, you remember, on the character, the manner of his ministry. Look at verse uh, 1 and 2 again where he gives us the first two elements I brought up. But to see that he's reflecting on his own personal manner in ministry, he says, we have received this ministry. We have received mercy. We do not lose heart. We have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. But this is the positive manner in which he did carry out the ministry by the manifestation of the truth. We are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. The Apostle Paul had manifested the truth. That is to say, he publicly displayed the truth of the gospel. He didn't hide anything. He didn't hide anything. And he certainly didn't handle the ministry in that sort of seeker model. He wasn't trying to appease man. He was, that is what seeker-sensitive type models in churches, consumer-driven, market-driven churches are doing. They hide from people the truth of the gospel they, because the aim of that type of methodology is to make the gospel so palatable to every person that anyone can come to church and take away something, whether you believe in it or don't whether you accept it or not, whether you're conforming to it or not. Some churches strive to make the gospel more palatable, more comfortable, more easy to believe. But we know that the gospel is not just not easy to believe, it is impossible to believe. It is only by an act of sovereign grace that anyone would accept the gospel He talked about this earlier, this manner that he had. Look back at chapter 2, and I think he spoke with the same exact sobriety, knowing what had been entrusted to him in the gospel. The gospel was his to proclaim. It was not his to modify. It was not his to adapt. It was his simply to proclaim. And he knew what was at stake. He knew that it was one or the other, this polarization that results from the Gospels mentioned right here in chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. He says, but I thank God who always leads us in triumph and manifests through us the sweet aroma of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To To the one, an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many. There are so many today that can be described like this. Peddling the Word of God. He says, by contrast, he says, we are from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ. And I taught that that was in reference to in Christ, meaning, yes, in union with Christ, but also under Christ's authority, in the sight of God, meaning that Paul was cognizant of his ultimate 
accountability before God who would judge his ministry. There is a real sense, therefore, brothers and sisters, that the minister, and this is why how you do ministry and how you handle the Word of God and how you handle the gospel is detrimental because it is in the, it is in the, in the, in the hand of the minister that life and death reside. There's a real sense in which that's true. You remember what the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is an amazing statement. If this doesn't produce sobriety in, a, in the ministry, I don't know what will. 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, he says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. He says, persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure the salvation both of yourself or for yourself and for those who hear you. Isn't that amazing? Yes, the doctrine of the, of the minister has to be sound. It has to be orthodox. But also his manner, his method, his character in the ministry is just as significant. It is God's chosen means by which he will save his people. What an incredible, weighty task that I bear, that a pastor bears, that a preacher bears, and that every believer that whatever share his or her faith bears. You bear an awesome responsibility to testify to the truth of the gospel. And just like a false teacher can be the means, the contour, he can be the avenue through which a person's soul is damned unto perdition. In the same way, the preacher that would preach the gospel rightly, he is God's chosen instrument. Like God told Paul, you are my instrument. And it would be his, it would, he is God's instrument to preach this message of life and death. So Paul gives us, I think here, several aspects, okay? Several things, several reasons that should cause us to be sober about the gospel. And I want to give you four quick ones. So I don't know how quick they'll be, but I want to give you four, Okay? The first one is this. We need to take serious the fact that we preach the true gospel. I'm making a big deal out of that little phrase, our gospel. You see that in verse 1? Or excuse me, in uh, verse 3 when Paul says, even if our gospel. Every time Paul says our gospel, he is referring to that orthodox gospel, that body of doctrine, that apostolic teaching that was committed and entrusted to him. So the very first thing is to know that we have been committed this apostolic gospel, this body of doctrine, this orthodox teaching that the Christian church has held throughout all of its history. And therefore, we should never tamper with it. We should always make sure that the orthodoxy of our message is sound. Perhaps no other book really draws this out better than Galatians, right? You know the passage, but I want to read it to you again. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, because this is the gospel that Paul is talking about. And look at again with what sobriety Paul approaches it. 
He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ, Galatians 1.6, for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which you've received, that was the, my old New King James kicking in, sorry. Contrary to that which, which we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you've received, he is to be accursed. You know what's amazing about that verse? Is that the Apostle Paul uses an imperative at that last place in verse 9. He is to be accursed. In other words, it's the word, let him be accursed. It's almost a, a, a polite way of urging the church to recognize that anyone who distorts the gospel is to be recognized as cursed by God. Amazing. Anathematized because of the compromise of the gospel. This is what all true gospel is based on. Every true church and believer is entrusted with this depository of truth, and we cannot compromise it. We are committed with the original gospel message. We are committed with the apostles' doctrine more than any confession, more than any council, more than any creed, more than any doctrinal statement. We are first and foremost committed to the body of doctrine that consists of the apostolic preaching of the cross. Therefore, how we handle the gospel is of all significance. Number two, not only we to take serious the gospel, but more than that, we need to take serious the fact that people are perishing. As I sat there meditating on this portion of Scripture, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that there are people that are going to perish. I was on a, um, a telephone conversation with, a, with a, 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 an individual uh, a couple weeks ago that was trying to convince me of the aberrant view of the doctrine of hell, namely annihilationism. He was trying to convince me that what the Scriptures teach about hell is not what historically, historical orthodox believers have always believed, and that is the teaching or the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. That is to say that hell is eternal. That is to say that in hell you will be conscious, and that is to say that hell will be torment. That is what hell is. Hell is dreadful. Hell is unthinkable. Hell is the place where the worm never dies. Hell is the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is that awesome reality that we cannot lose grasp of. Hell is not just temporary. Hell is not what the liberals say. It is what you make it in this world. Hell is your environment. Hell is your socioeconomical status in this life. That is not hell. Hell is God's hell. And God will tell us what hell is. And if we want to know what hell is, we need to go to God to fight, figure out what hell is. And God's Word tells us what it is. It is a place of unspeakable suffering. It is a place of darkness. It is a place of weeping and, and unceasing anguish. It is a place where you have no rest. And ultimately, 
It is a place where there are no second chances. It is a place where hope is gone, where the glory of God is inaccessible, where the love of God will never be heard of again. It is the place of complete and utter abandonment and isolation and isolation. The doctrine of hell is very important, brothers and sisters, because it will rock you to your very core and commitment to the Bible. So many people waver at this point, like this gentleman that I spoke to a few weeks ago. They waver at this point because it is difficult for them in their human mind to understand how is it possible that God would ever send someone to hell. But the reality remains nevertheless. It's like I told him, if hell is not the hell of the Bible, then what am I doing going around preaching and evangelizing? What am I doing going around pleading with sinners to be reconciled to God if, at the, if in the end they're simply going to slip out of existence? No, brothers and sisters, hell is eternal. You know, the verb that Paul uses here is this participle that comes from the word to perish, apalumi. And it's used in different contexts referring to eternal destruction. Apolumi. And Scripture teaches that this is what will happen in connection with this verse here in, in Corinthians. To those who do not obey the gospel, to those that do not love the truth, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, let me just give you one important passage on this because it ties in directly to the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1.6, he says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those that afflict you. Paul is comforting the Thessalonians who have been going through severe persecution. He says, and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord, when He is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those that do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These, the same people that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. That is what hell is all about. And if that does not cause you to engage in ministry with a sober mind and a sober heart, realizing that what you're doing here is a matter of life and death, nothing will sober you up. As a matter of fact, churches will tell you today, don't focus on that. As a matter of fact, churches will often never preach on the doctrine of hell. I mean, think about it. Even in good churches, sound churches, expository churches, how often is it that we hear an exposition on the doctrine of hell? Of hell. It's disturbing. Oftentimes, when I'm preaching to a group of college students up at UNT here, I'll tell them that I know that this is disturbing. I know that even thinking about hell is offensive to you. I, I understand that. But I rather offend you with the truth than to deceive you with a lie that everything is okay, that everything is just going to be all right, that life is just going to go on the way that it is, that you'll always have fun, that you'll always be entertained, that you'll always have the next gadget, that you'll always be able to upgrade to your next smartphone, that you'll always be able to watch your favorite TV program, that you're always going to have your mom and dad, that you're always going to have the comfort and the convenience that you have now 
But that is not true. That is a facade. That is not real. That is not real at all. So we have to take this very serious. But let me point out two things. I remember a pastor said once, it is the mercy of God that he does not allow us to dwell on hell for too long. I think that's right. I think if you really sat there and you just marinated and thought and, and just obsessed with what hell is and the reality of it, I think you would go insane. And it is the grace and mercy of God that he doesn't allow us to be totally and completely overcome with grief. Oh, there is grief. Where he talked about Romans chapter 9, for example, the Apostle Paul grieving over his kinsmen, his brethren who were perishing. But there, are, there is also not panic. That is to say that we are also not to live irrational, in irrational desperation, running out of this church right now because I just t- told you that people are going to hell and then forsaking everything and going and all you do day and night is warn people on the streets. No, if you think about it, the apostles themselves didn't live like that. However, they did because they believed in the sovereignty of God. They did live beneath that reality in such a way that they were committed to consistently spreading and furthering the gospel. They weren't irrational. They weren't desperate in a sense. They didn't become overcome with grief, but they were absolutely committed to cooperating with the gospel, advancing the gospel, promoting and spreading the gospel, and orienting their whole life around the gospel. Do you do that? Are you concerned with the spread of the gospel in some way? You say, well, I don't do the street preaching. I don't go out with the tracks. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a preacher like you. I want to remind you of something very fascinating out of the book of Philippians, and that is that Paul referred to the whole church as cooperating with him in the spread of the gospel. Regardless if everybody in the church was not an evangelist, and certainly they were not. Regardless if everybody was not a missionary, and certainly they were not, or pastors or preachers. But every person, apparently, in Philippi had some sort of committed contribution to the spread of the gospel. I love it. Be committed to pray for those that do go out. Be committed to pray for the church that would always be gospel-focused, that we would never become so ingrown so that we come in here into our building and we get into our nice little cozy little sewing circle and all we do is just kind of knit little hats for each other. No, brothers and sisters, but we are not to be ingrown in that way, but we're to be focused on the reality that there are lost people all around us. A healthy dose of a cautious concern, a a consistent concern for the lost. Let's move on because I can be on that all day. But the third thing is this. Not only do we need to take the fact that people are perishing serious, but thirdly, we need to take serious the fact of Satan's influence in the world. Look at the the verse again, verse 4. He says, even if our, verse 3 again, Even our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. And I want to draw your attention to that word there, world, depending on what translation you have. The Greek word, though, is age. It's not cosmos. It's anios. It's the word age. It is the God of this age 
which is a reference to Satan who influences and controls, if you would, the, the basic philosophical bent of this evil world system, this perverted and wicked and evil age. He is the God of it, not in the sense that he is sovereign over it, not in the sense that he is truly ruling over it in, a, in an ultimate sense, but because those who are deceived are under his dominion, under his power, under his influence. And that's exactly what Satan does, is he influences people away from the gospel. He doesn't cause you not to believe the gospel. Your own sin and your own unbelief is the cause of that. But Satan, if you would, confirms you in your unbelief. He hardens you and deceives you even further and complicates faith in the gospel even more. He puts obstacles in front of you. He puts other things to trust in except the gospel. Satan would be just happy if people would adopt moralism for moralism's sake. If they just clean themselves up. Satan is quite happy with you if you found yourself at AA. Satan is quite happy for you if you found, as one man told me once, salvation in your spouse. That you live for your family. You live for your spouse that you have found the true meaning of life in anything other than the gospel. Satan would be quite content with that. Satan is after one thing ultimately, and that is faith. He wants to destroy faith, eat faith, gobble faith. He wants to devour faith. He is a lion. He wants to tear faith to pieces. You ever seen a lion eat something? They just tear it to pieces. It's violent. I can't help to laugh in my own mind. I just read about, here I am talking about sobriety. I'm about to laugh. But I did read an article last night about a man who jumped into the zoo to be one with the lions. (laughs) Guess what they did to him? They devoured him. Uh, He made it out alive by the grace of God. But that's what he got for tampering or playing with the lions. And if you play with Satan, he will devour you. You think that it's not a big deal, but it will cost you everything. But that's what he does. Notice what it says. He blinds the minds of the unbelieving. So now we have the unbelieving and the perishing. These are appositional to one another. In other words, they explain and equivocate each other. Those that are perishing are those that are unbelieving. And what is happening to those that are, that are unbelieving? They are being affected in a specific way, namely or primarily in their mind. That is where Satan's influence is most concentrated. He gets you to think wrongly about God and the gospel. He gets you to adopt a foreign philosophy. He gets you to adopt false teaching about the greatest truth of all time. Right now, in our own time, in our own day, right now, contemporary, what's going on in America, for example, and in the world, but... In America, they're making a big deal out of it, is they found a fragment, a papyrus, that indicates, it seems to indicate that, that, that Jesus somewhere said or made a reference to his wife. Okay. And so they're pulling up probably what is nothing but a, a, a Gnostic gospel, which has no 
authority attached to it whatsoever, and because it's mentioned something in there about Jesus having a wife, of course the media and the liberal scholarship just runs wild with that. And oh no, here finally we have discovered what is true about Jesus. Isn't it amazing that they reject everything else that we know about Jesus? <laughs> but this obscure little fragment and little scrap of data, oh, but that's true. And we're about to change everything in light of that. See, Jesus did have a wife. Do you believe the rest of the Bible like you believe that? Not that that's in the Bible, but you know what I mean. The inconsistency and the hypocrisy is nothing less, brothers and sisters, than satanically originated, influenced. It's amazing. This is what Satan does, is he blinds their mind. He gets them to think of false teaching, and he gets them under his power and influence. You know another way that Satan influences people? If you look at Hebrews chapter 4, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, the author of Hebrews there talking about what Christ did when he came and he conquered death, and he refers to death or the power of death, as something that Satan uses to wield it over people so that through the fear of death, people will remain enslaved all their lives. What does that mean? I think it means this, that because of the fear of death, people are unwilling to, to, to put themselves in a vulnerable position, especially regarding the gospel, especially regarding Christ they seek above everything else, in other words, self-preservation. This passage should be harmonized with Revelation 21.8 that specifies that those who go into the lake of fire are cowards. I always thought that was an amazing statement. should be harmonized with another place in Revelation that says that those, those who were saved, those who were saved during this great time of tribulation will be saved. Why? Because they did not love their life unto death. In other words, they were willing to let go of this life if it meant following Christ. But you see, the cowardly will not identify himself with Christ. It was cowardice, after all, that caused Peter to backslide in the garden next to the, or in the courtyard next to the little servant girl by the fire. It is the fear that causes somebody to be above everything willing to preserve his or her life at all costs, regardless of what compromise or how badly they need to sell out. We are fearful people, and Satan uses fear as a tool to keep us under his dominion and power. Satan has far-reaching influences in the world. First John 5.19 says this, We know that we're of God, that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. The word there, power, is literally in the lap or in the influence of Satan, of the evil one. They are under his influencing power. And how does he do that today? He does that today by influencing people towards postmodernism, influencing people with evolution, influencing people with sexuality distortions, with materialism, with agnosticism or atheism, with secularism or paganism or occultism. All form of false religion, man-made religion, ultimately originates with him. He is the first false prophet. John MacArthur says Satan is the archetype of all false gods and all the false religions 
that he has spawned. So ultimately, Satan uses that which the world deems to be wise in its own eyes in order to blind them, listen now, to the wisdom of God. This is truly diabolical, is it not? The God of this age uses the wisdom of this age to trick and to deceive the people of this age into believing in what God has deemed foolish. Look at, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul states this very thing. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, for it, yes, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, now listen to this very closely, for since in the wisdom of the world, that is, in the utilization of the world's wisdom, it says the world through its own wisdom, its own resources, its own epistemology, its own philosophy, did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And their foolishness is obviously a play on word. It is not foolish. The cross is the very wisdom of God. It is the high point, the apex of the wisdom of God, of the mind of God revealed to man what happened at the cross. To show you how, maybe on a very practical level, how Satan does this, I I was reminded of the life of famous philosopher out of Oxford, Anthony Flew. Many of you know him. He was a, he was a, a staunch atheist for most of, most of his life, and he was, the, the, he was the, one of the leading atheists that many atheists would run to for anti-Christian arguments, etc. Well, towards the end of his life, if you know anything about this, Anthony Flew renounced atheism and close to the end of his life claimed to now believe in God. There's only one problem with that. The Apostle Paul is not just saying that Satan blinds people from believing in God. Look at what he says. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see what? The light of the gospel. Not just that there is not a God, a designer, a creator. Who cares if you believe in that? If you don't believe in the gospel, you are not believing in the true and living God. If you don't believe in the gospel, you are still in the, on the broad road that leads to destruction. It is not enough, as James teaches us, to say, I believe in God. Who cares? Congratulations. The demons believe, though they tremble. No, it is a, it is a failure to believe in the gospel that is utterly detrimental. It is not enough until you have fully swallowed the pill of the gospel, until you have fully embraced by faith, if you've put all your confidence in the gospel and in what it proclaims, that you have known the facts of the gospel and that you have intellectually agreed with the gospel and then fully with your whole heart trust in the gospel, then we can talk about whether or not you are saved. But it is not enough 
to simply pay lip service to God as he is some cosmic divine creator that is out there. Ultimately, Anthony Flew went from atheism to what is called deism, the belief that God is out there but that he's not involved. He is an impersonal God. Ultimately, He is unknowable. We can't know, which means you cannot trust they, that, 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 that that person is not trusting in the Word of God. Okay, the fourth thing, because we can go on and on. We need to take serious the fact that the sinner is blind to glorious, glorious things. Look at the last phrase. This is what they are blind to, to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The detrimental factor, therefore, according to this passage, is that where God's glory shines the brightest is where man's spiritual blindness affects the soul of man the deepest. Like Paul's assessment of the natural man in 1 Corinthians, here Paul's thought is the same. The very thing that man so desperately needs, he rejects. The very thing he so desperately lacks, he doesn't want. The very thing that he needs to get right with God, he forfeits. So in doing that, he forfeits the only way to know God. Listen to this, my friends. Looking upon the loving, looking upon and loving the cross is the purest logic of the soul. And thus, in a in a Satan-influenced world, it is, it is the very thing that sinners are blind to. Listen, the cross is the greatest, the highest wisdom that anyone can ever embrace. It is at the cross and it is through the gospel, as Paul says right here, that the glory of Christ resides. It's an interesting construction what Paul has done here. Now, follow closely with me because Paul did this, I I believe, Paul did this on purpose. He he uses a quick succession of genitives, okay? Follow close. He says it is the light of the gospel, of the glory, of Christ. He does that on purpose so that he can stack layer upon layer upon layer of where truth is resides of where of what it of what the ultimate thing is that these sinners are blinded to the gospel we could say is the source the the glory we could say is what is contained in the gospel and Christ we could say is what the glory is about and that is what it's all about it's Christ Ultimately, they are blind to the beauty and wonder and perfections and, 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 and just the splendor of Jesus Christ. No capacity to appreciate all of His excellencies, as Jonathan Edwards says. Because in Jesus Christ, God, what God has done is that He has brought together a mixture of divine excellencies all wrapped up in one person. When you consider His cross work, when you consider His blood, when you consider His divinity, when you consider His omniscience and all of His attributes, when you consider His holiness, and we see it like when Paul or Peter was fishing and Jesus revealed His glory to him as He's there fishing and catching nothing. It happened a lot with the disciples. They tried to do things apart from Christ and they were frustrated. 
And then Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side. And as soon as the miracle was performed, what did Peter do? A sense of awe came upon Peter, right? An epiphanic phenomenon had just taken place. A fear-gripping miracle just took place. And what does Peter do? He becomes acutely, sharply aware of his own creatureliness and his own sinfulness and says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinner. He realized that he was in the presence of something transcendent. Something that was so awfully majestic that he, he, he didn't belong there. He didn't belong in the presence of such a glorious person. But it is to this person that unbelievers are blind to. And how else are you going to describe this person but as the way that Paul does? He is the image of of God. He says, Hos esteen a kon to theu. He doesn't say he might be the image of God. He is like the image of God. He uses an indicative verb, which means in reality, he is the image of God. There is nothing you can take away from who Christ is when you compare him to the image of God. He is the image of God. What God is, Christ is. They share the same divine essence. There is an ontological agreement between all that God is and all that Christ is. If I can end on a passage, I would end with this. Hebrews chapter 1, let Scripture interpret itself. What does it mean that He is the image of God? Let God be His own interpreter, right? Hebrews 1, 1, 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken past past tense. As a matter of fact, done deal. It's over. Revelation is over through Jesus Christ. He has spoken to us in His Son, who He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. He is the radiance of of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. To sit down at the right hand of the Majesty on high says you share the Majesty's authority. You share the Majesty's power and position and status. So Christ shares the status and the position of everything that you could think is God. These are the excellencies of Jesus Christ. And it should cause us to say, wow, there are some great things in the gospel, isn't there? This is serious business that we're dealing with here. There's no more slapstick Christianity. No more arcade Christianity, no more Disneyland in the kingdom of God. These are weighty and eternal things that we are dealing with. And brothers and sisters, it behooves us. It is obligation, it is necessity is placed upon us that we bring fear and trembling to the gospel, how we worship our God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, 
I know that I have failed so utterly today because the subject matter is just so great. Lord, who could rightly say? Who can adequately describe? Who could tell of all of your wondrous deeds? Father, we're so grateful today for the gospel. Father, you did not have to reveal the gospel to us, but you chose to. Father, you did not have to take away the blinders from our eyes, but you did. And so God, instead of getting bitter and getting upset and getting frustrated and getting resentful at the fact that there are those that will perish, instead of that, oh God, help us by the grace of God to respond with gratitude to our sovereign God who has chosen so freely of His own grace to lavish His mercy upon us. Thank you for the gospel today, Lord. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you for revealing Him to us. And it's in His glorious, supreme name that we pray. Amen. Well, I just wanted to leave you with this as we're talking about the perishing and those that are being saved. Our eyes are open. Satan has not blinded our eyes. We do enjoy our Lord. We do see His glory. I wanted to just leave you with 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. John says, Little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of of the devil. No one who practices no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Praise the Lord. I pray that you will have a great day, glorious day. Um, stay fellowship. Uh, don't go anywhere. Uh, let's uh, reflect on everything that we talked about and heard and I pray that you'd have a blessed week. God bless y'all.